Hey everybody, thanks for tuning in to Deep Dive, the all music books podcast where we talk to authors of music books, bios, history, and criticism. I'm your host, Steve J. Today's guest is Roger Steffens, who is the author of So Much Things to Say, the oral history of Bob Marley. Welcome, Roger. It's nice to be here with you. Yeah, it's uh, 85 degrees. Where? What's it like there? 70 degrees here. Oh, very un-Boston-like. I'm wearing shorts. We had uh, snow last week, which sucked. <laughs> it was a portent of things to come. We're waiting on locusts, but... <laughs> anyway, so congratulations on your one-of-a-kind book. Only someone with your deep, deep reggae knowledge and connections could pull this off. Well, that's nice of you to say. It is the, the result of almost 50 years of reggae obsession. Indeed. Can you give our listeners uh, your background and experience with reggae music as that obsession? Well, I started in radio in 1961 in New York, and my first guest was Ola Tunji, the Nigerian drummer. And I've always been interested in, in Black music, ethnic music. I loved the doo-wop harmonies of the 50s. I was born in 1942, so I'm first-generation rock and roll. And in the 60s, when Dylan and, and the folk movement came in and added consciousness to popular music, uh, I was enthralled with that as well. By the early 70s, most of the major conglomerates had bought up the small labels and deracinated the music, and it was disco crap. And uh, like a lot of aging hippies, I was looking for something that would combine the great harmonies of the 50s music with the consciousness of the 60s. And in 1973, I read an article in Rolling Stone by a gonzo journalist from Australia named Michael Thomas, who said, reggae music crawls into your bloodstream like some vampire amoeba from the psychic rapids of upper Niger consciousness. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, man, I don't know what the heck that is, but I got to find this right now. And I was living in Berkeley and I ran out to a used record store and I found a $2.25 used copy of Catch a Fire, the Whalers' first album released in America. It opened up like a Zippo lighter. Right. And the next day I saw The Harder They Come and my life changed forever. And in 1976, my wife Mary and I went to Jamaica trying to find all the records we couldn't find in the States. And when we arrived in Kingston, there was a national state of emergency. And there were tanks on all the crossroads on the island. I thought I was back in Saigon during the Tet Offensive. Wow. <laughs> and wow. one of the biggest reggae stars at the time picked my pocket in Bob Marley's record shack. So it was a real uh, eye-opener of a trip for me. And in 1978, after uh, we, we had moved to Los Angeles, I met a fellow named Hank Holmes. And he had never left L.A. in his life, but he had a collection of over 8,000 Jamaican records. There's a, a story in a book that we're both associated with, the Whalers discography that Rounder Records published. And I tell the story in there of how Hank put this extraordinary collection together for almost nothing. I figured with my radio background and his collection and knowledge, we could do a, a very interesting radio program. And there was no reggae show in L.A. at the time. So we tried for a year to get on the air. And we finally did on a tiny station that was headquartered in a junior high school classroom <laughs> in Santa Monica. 
and had great plans to grow um, longer, broader than its 110 watts at the time allowed. And that became the West Coast powerhouse KCRW. We were really responsible for a lot of the growth of the station because we made so much money in the fund drives that they gave us four hours every Sunday afternoon after our first fund drive had made in three hours what the previous 10-day drive had made. So the power of reggae was right there from the start in 1979, and it rapidly expanded to a television show called L.A. Reggae, which ran for 23 years, a magazine called The Beat, which lasted for 28 years. In 1984, I was asked to uh, start the first reggae Grammy committee, which I headed for 27 years, and that same year, I was invited to the National Video Festival at the American Film Institute to do an evening of my, shall we say, unreleased footage. <laughs> <laughs> and that led to a show I put together called The Life of Bob Marley, where I played two hours of unreleased footage and told his life story. And uh, I did that for 16 years on Bob's birthday in, in New York, sponsored by SOBs. And that show has taken me all over the world, to the outback in Australia, to the bottom of the Grand Canyon, where the Havasupai Indians regard Bob Marley as the reincarnation of Chief Red Cloud, returned to Earth as an Indian to lead the Red Man forward to his new freedom. So it's it's been a, a real education for me, and I'm learning something every day. So anytime I came across someone who knew Bob, I tried to do an interview with him. Our very first interview was with Peter Tosh in September of 79. Bob Marley was our first guest on the reggae beat the following Monday, uh, November of 79. And I was invited to go on the road with him for two weeks. That was an, an incredible time. We had a lot of discussions and an interesting time on the bus together and sitting in the Roxy almost empty as he did a uh, a sound check playing something over and over again I'd never heard before about redemption. And I, I always remember what he said when we asked for advice, because we, we had just started the first reggae show in L.A., and we wanted to know what he, he could suggest to us. And he says, always remember this music is not just for jollification, it's for education, too. Well, uh, reggae is one of the few that I think you can say that about. It looks like you're deep, deep into reggae. You know, it's funny because I came at it about the same time. I'm a bit younger, but about 76, 77, 78 through punk rock, uh -huh. you know, and The Clash and those. And I grew up in Miami and where I went to school, Bob Marley had a house like right down the road. And I used to see this yellow Jeep riding through the streets down by my house with the big One Love poster on the back tire and just smoke pouring out the sides of this Jeep. <laughs> I had friends who went by there. They didn't come home for days. But, you know, once it got into my system, like you, it's a passion. Let's talk about your book, though, because oral histories are a different kind of book. And you didn't start this off as writing it as an oral history. Is that correct? That's right. Um, I had done two books for W.W. Norton before that, Spirit Dancer with Bruce Talaman and uh, One Love, Life with Bob Marley by Lee Jaffe. And I pitched Jim Mars, their senior editor back in 2002, 
on a collection of all the interviews. I, I think at that point it was over a hundred interviews that I had done with people who had personal dealings with Bob Marley, people who knew him from the age of three on through his band and his family and so forth. I wanted this to be a compendium of basic knowledge about Bob that historians could reference forever. The uncut interview exactly as I, I did it with each of these people. I, I worked on that for about three years. Uh, doing the transcripts was a real <laughs> challenge because a lot of it was patois. I remember Muda Baruka saying to me, Wapanam and Med. And I said, what'd you say? He said, Wapanam and Med. And I, I recorded it at seven and a half on a reel-to-reel -reel and played it back at three and three quarters and I got Wapanam Ed. He was saying, what's happening in his head? Because gotcha. the Jamaicans drop all their H's. Wapen in a im ed. So it was a challenge to do, you know, 100 transcripts and get them right. And then I had a computer crash in 2005, which took all the transcripts, all of my, my first attempts at, at working, you know, a credible book out of it. And I was so downpressed, as the Jamaicans would say that I didn't do anything for the next two years. And Jim Morris said, where's my book? Mm. So I had to tell him what happened. And he says, all right, start again. I understand. Remarkable patience. By 2011, I figured I, I had everything he needed. And I sent it off. And a few months later, he wrote, he said, well, our editors have decided that this is not publishable. Uh, we'd like you to turn it into the regular format of an oral history book, where you have a subject let's say the One Love Peace concert, and you take all the people you've interviewed about that and take the best quotes from each of them and put a chapter together on that and use that as your format for the entire book. So that took another several years, and then my editor died. Oh, well, talk about the law of unintended consequences. My new editor, Tom Mayer, used to be a reggae disc jockey on WKCR at Columbia University in New York and had a ska band in New York. So he knew the subject inside out. And he just shuffled everything together. And he told me how to make the transitions and the chapters. And he turned it into something that I never could have done without his help. So he's the he's almost the co-author. He's, he's the secret hero of this book. And it, it, it paid off because when the paperback version of it came out, uh, last year, Rolling Stone reviewed it, and the headline of the review referring to the 700 Bob Marley books that already exist, the review headline said, this might be the best Bob Marley book ever. And that, you know, it still takes my breath away when I think about it, because I have every issue of Rolling Stone from volume one, number one, which I bought the day before I shipped to Vietnam, and I subscribed immediately when I got to Saigon. And I have a, a full collection of Rolling Stone for the past 53 years. And uh, I've never been reviewed in any way in Rolling Stone until that came out. And it sure felt good. <laughs> well, as you mentioned, there's a lot 
700. I didn't know it was that high, but there's a lot of books on Bob Marley. That's all the languages combined. Oh, I see. I see. Yeah. Well, most of them are worth a read. There's a couple where I was like, eh. It's interesting because you mentioned Spirit Dancer, which was a collaboration with you and Bruce Talman, and he was a photographer. So that was mo- mostly images. And now in this book, interestingly, it's stories, which you also lend your voice to, but there's all these compendium of voices who fill in the gaps in different ways from his life. And some of them, you know, are world famous musicians and some of them are, are everyday Jamaicans, you know, and it's a, it's really a fascinating book. 75 of the people who knew him best are telling their stories. And one of my favorite reviews came from the uh, Ghanaian Jamaican poet and professor uh, Kwame Dawes, who wrote Bob Marley, Lyrical Genius. He said the book was a triumph of the storytelling virtuosity of the Jamaican people. That's high praise. Yeah, and they're great storytellers. Indeed, that's one of their unique skill sets. Another one, the very first words in your book are, (laughs) there are no facts in Jamaica, only versions. Actually, I had three epigrams when I sent the book to Linton Kwesi Johnson, who agreed finally to write the introduction to it. I had three epigrams at the beginning, that one. And the second one was something that I read in Jamaica many years ago. If you want to keep a secret in Jamaica, put it in a book. (laughs) (laughs) And the third one came from Professor Erwin Corey. Do you remember him? I do remember the name. He was the comedian who was on the Ed Sullivan show all the time, dressed in a white lab coat with wild iron stinian hair and he was a double talk artist and he'd do these things that you, you couldn't make much sense of but they were hysterically funny and the end of each bit was always oh, look this may not be the truth but let us use it as a fact oh scary today so that was the third epigram and linton wrote back and said those other two aren't going to work roger you must remove them <laughs> I'm going to agree with him because it's an old folk proverb too, but it's amply proved in your book, which has no shortage of versions of the exact same story. You know, feel free to tell us yours and, and you can work in the other interpretations as we speak. Okay. Um, so there, there, there have been several early iterations of the whalers with different members and stuff, or the whaling whalers as they were originally known. But really it's the trinity of Bob, Bunny, Whaler, and Peter Tosh that most people identify with. Can you talk about what role each man played and what they brought to both the music and the ideological table? That's a very good question, because it it certainly evolved over the years. But I think as we got to know them, you realize that that Bob, Bob was on a mission. His whole life was music. Nothing else mattered. The music was a vehicle to spread the philosophy of Rastafari. That Haile Selassie was the living God walking among us in this Iowa, this hour, this time. And Peter, being about six foot four and a karate expert, he was the militant, most militant of them. He, I, I often say uh, something that is now inscribed on the entrance to the Peter Tosh Museum in Kingston. If Bob Marley was Martin Luther King in these times, Peter Tosh was Malcolm X with a band. So Peter was the militant. Peter was the man who was beaten more than once by the police, almost to the point where they left him for dead. He had an attitude, and he scared a lot of people. Uh, Bunny uh, often presents himself as the high priest of reggae in, in these kind of Catholic robes, talking about Rastafari and a lot of his music, although 
I don't think Bunny made a decent record after 1987's Liberation. He seemed to go really off into some very strange and uncomfortable places. But while the Whalers were together, I think he was much more serious. Blackheart Man is one of the greatest albums of all time, his first solo album. And that's a very spiritual album. Is it fair to say if uh, Bunny was far left and Peter was far right, Bob was the center? Far right if you mean religious fundamentalism, which is what Bunny was all about. Right, or militantism with Peter on that side. Yes. But but Bob uh, represented both of those things in most of his work. You know, he had the, the spiritual side as well as the tough side. Simmer Down was one of their very early singles and a pretty big hit in Jamaica. And that was a message to the so-called Rude Boys. And that was made with the legendary producer Coxon Dodd. But they also got some guidance and coaching from some Jamaican legends who many people wouldn't know. But if you're into reggae, they are benchmarks. Well, prime among them, of course, is Joe Higgs. Joe Higgs was asked by a mutual friend to coach Bob when Bob was only about 14 years old. And he coached him for several years, taught him uh, mic technique, stage presence, taught him how to compose Bob was a very, very anxious, keen student of, of Joe's. He was also very anxious to start recording, and against Joe's better uh, wishes, he went to Leslie Kong, who had a record label called Beverly's, and made two singles, uh, both of which flopped. And he went back to Trenchtown and uh, worked some more with, uh, with Joe and started to sing with uh, Bunny, who was basically being raised as Bob's brother. Bob's mother and Bunny's father had a liaison. And then a young fellow from the west of Kingston, from Sad Lamar, out near Negril, came to Kingston and he had a guitar. So <laughs> Bunny and Peter recruited him immediately. He was the only person they knew had a guitar. And uh, that was the formation of the Whalers, along with another young fellow named Junior Braithwaite, who Coxon said had the best voice in the group. And there was a, a woman uh, named Cherry Green who rehearsed with them for a long time. But she had a kid and she worked seasonally in a grapefruit packing factory. And when it came time for the Whalers, after they passed an audition at Cox and Dodd Studio to record their first song, she wasn't available. So they got a girl in the neighborhood they heard singing on a Saturday night named Beverly Kelso. And two days later, according to several reports, she was in Coxon's studio with the Whalers cutting Simmer Down. Well, as you well know, the Jamaican record business is unique and one of a kind for sure. <laughs> the Whalers would eventually record with Almost all of the island's producers and record men. You mentioned, we talked about uh, Cox and Dodd. You mentioned Leslie Kong. They worked with Lee Scratch Perry and then Johnny Nash and Danny Sims, who, you know, were Jamaican, so to speak, but they recorded down there. Even a Dutchman named Ted Powder. Oh, I don't know of him. <laughs> in the late 60s. But interestingly enough, the, you know, it's a very competitive industry down there and the producer kind of holds all the cards. And uh, obviously, that did not end well with a lot of the, the Whalers' side projects. What was the state of affairs with the Jamaican record business as a whole and also the Whalers' relationship with it? Well, it was very hard to really make any money. And after a couple of years with Coxon, Bob moved to the States, where his mother was living, uh, had married a man in Delaware. And he swept floors in the DuPont Hotel trying to make money to go back to Jamaica and start their own label. And that happened at the end of 1966. Uh, he started a label with Bunny and Peter called
called uh, Wayland Solemn. And the flip of their first single was called Freedom Time, a cry of emancipation from Coxon and all the other producers. They had two major goals in their early lives when they went out on their own. They wanted to have their own label and they wanted to earn enough money that they could buy a big house for them to live together with their families and have their own recording studio in that house. That was work they were working for. And it got to the point where Rita would drive around Kingston on bicycles with stacks of records, uh, going to sell it to the little record stores or privately. They had a little shack downtown where they sold their own records. They had some minor hits, but they never made enough money to really establish themselves. And then Johnny Nash came knocking with uh, Danny Sims, his mafia partner, and signed them up and told them they were going to make them big international stars and that Bob would compose songs for Johnny Nash. Johnny made at least two dozen songs written by Bob Marley and had some big hits in America with them. Their own records uh, that Sims and Nash released on their JAD record label never really hit. Uh, they couldn't get airplay in the States. It sounded too odd or too poorly produced for the American market. And uh, after four years of working together in 1972, 73, their contract was sold by Danny Sims to Chris Blackwell at Island Records. So it was very, very hard for the Whalers to establish themselves without any true financial backing. But they were resolved that they weren't going to fall under the thumb of a producer again and make that mistake. And you'd mentioned, uh, you know, the, the guy with the guitar. And one of the things that comes through almost everyone who speaks in your book, they all talk about Bob's work ethic. He's always had his guitar. He's always playing. He's always singing. But he had, you know, sort of an organic approach to the craft. It wasn't sit down, write the verse, this and that. He was just always doing something, wasn't he? He was. And if anybody uh, asks uh, people who knew him well what one word is that would describe Bob Marley. Virtually all of them say the same thing, as do I, disciplined, hmm. disciplined. He was dreadly serious. Uh, you didn't have a lot of small talk, little chat with Bob. Hmm. Uh, I remember uh, Pipe uh, Matthews, the lead singer of the Wailing Souls, telling me a story about visiting Bob after he had broken through in Europe in 1976, and he was obviously a star now. Pipe went to visit him at Tough Gong, his headquarters in Kingston, and Bob said, uh, how you doing, Pipe? What, what's going on? He says, oh, nothing much, just chilling. And Bob goes, in these times? <laughs> Yikes. Yeah. You know, and, and it's interesting because, as, especially as they grow, we're talking the early, mid-60s here, which a lot of people may be shocked that that's when the Whalers started. And then, you know, all the way through, you know, the, the superstardom, there were so many people who were sort of co-writers. They would offer up lyrics and ideas, and Bob would just run with them. And, you know, like I said earlier, everything just kind of happened organically. The Sky Juice Super Drink Suck Suck cart maker passing by Tough Gong. Bob would see him, and he'd invite him in, and he'd sing a song to him. And he says, uh, you got any lines for me? And the guy might throw a word or a line out, and Bob would put it right into the song. <laughs> he loved composing with people. His personal assistant, Desi Smith, is co-writer of a lot of his material without credit, waiting in vain. His uh, keyboard player, Wyalindo, wrote Redemption Song, and the other keyboard player, Tyrone Downey, wrote Waiting in Vain. Two huge ones. 
two of his greatest songs of all time. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. You had mentioned, you know, he went to live with his mom in Delaware, I believe, and that's where he was working on a factory job. And when he returns back to Jamaica, the whalers all in mass return to the countryside of Nine Miles where Bob was born. It was a pretty significant time for the band, correct? Well, it was because Bob had a serious case of writer's block after he returned and they started the label, released a couple of singles, and Bob kind of just hit the wall. He had been talking to Rita about Rastafari because she and Junior Braithwaite witnessed uh, Haile Selassie's visit in April of 1966 to Jamaica while Bob was living in Delaware. I've interviewed both of them about this, swore that when Selassie rode by in the motorcade and waved toward them, they saw the stigmata of Christ in Selassie's hand, and they took that as an omen that this was the returned Christ. And they told Bob about that. And Bob started studying Rasta with uh, Mortimer Planner, who was a controversial elder Rasta in the community who maintained a library of holy books and political tracts from people like the Black Panthers in America. He mentored the whalers for a short time until he took them to a whorehouse and walked down the stairs with a couple of women on his arms and a bottle of rum in his hand. And uh, they realized that this was not the holy figure they thought he was. And they parted ways with him. And I think that did something to Bob's head. So they, they went back to the countryside. Peter only lasted a week. Peter couldn't stand the quiet. <laughs> All he heard, he said, was peeny wallies. <laughs> their word for fireflies. But Bunny stayed there with him, and Rita stayed there with him for several months, and they worked the fields, and that was one of the early woundings in Bob's right foot, uh, the foot where the cancer eventually oh, right. started. Um, he had wounded it terribly uh, when he was still living as a young child in, in Nine Mile at the age of 11. Then in early 1967, when they had retreated to the country, he worked in the fields barefoot, and there was a super sharp hoe that had been left turned up 
and he walked backwards onto it accidentally, and it sliced his foot almost in half. He was such a, a hero to people because he wouldn't show any pain. He wouldn't stop working in the fields. They, they put some mud from deep in the earth around it and wrapped it in his shirt, and he continued to work and worked for the next month as that thing was healing. Uh, it, it was a strange time in his life, and, and he would go back and forth to Kingston for various errands and uh, eventually felt well enough to return to Kingston and get back into the recording business. You mentioned Chris Blackwell, who is a white Jamaican, the founder of Island Records, and uh, you know broke some huge, huge bands, and probably no one bigger than Bob Marley. What was his relationship with the band? I know Peter Tosh, years later, christened him Chris Whitewurst. So was it financial? Was it power? Was it just you know, time moved on. It was basically business-like. He did manage to get a 2% override as producer of Bob's albums, although the only one he ever really had a hand in was uh, the first album, Catch a Fire, where he added the two American musicians to it and helped give it an international sound that broke Bob and reggae music. There is a, a deluxe album that has the original version of it from Kingston before the sweetening, where they played on broken instruments and... Uh, uh, substandard microphones, but it is so rudical and so deep that it, it almost outstrips the released version, but both of them are fine. But Chris and Bob basically had a business relationship. They they were not friends. And in, several people, including Don Taylor, his later manager, said that Chris used Bob to get into the hip European set, you know, the Euro trash, the, <laughs> as they called them back then. That was his ticket into society, oddly enough. And by the time Bob was really a big star, 76, you know, he'd, he'd be in a nightclub in Paris and there would be duchesses and uh, superstar models all vying for attention. Mm. One night there was, I, I told, uh, kind of a loud competition between Bianca Jagger and the daughter of the Libyan oil minister for <laughs> who was going to go home with him that night. <laughs> Catch a Fire, that was their major label debut. And um, the band, even on this debut, was rechristened Bob Marley and the Whalers. No, it wasn't. It wasn't? That's the lie that Peter Tosh inexplicably promoted for years and years. And when I had him on my television show, I brought him the records. I have a copy of Suridown, one of the very first pressings that the name says Bob and the Whalers. When they had their own record label in 1966 upon Bob's return from the States, they could put anything on the label they wanted. They owned the record label. And what did they put on it? Bob Marley and the Wailing Wailers. That's the title on almost all the Wailing Solon singles. When the Lee Perry albums were released in 71 in England on Trojan, they were Bob Marley and the Wailers. When Chris released Catch a Fire in the lighter, lighter cover, it was the Whalers. When Burnin, their last album came out, it was the Whalers. He wanted to think of them like traffic, like a rock mm, band. Right. And so all those ideas that Chris Blackwell turned them from the Whalers into Bob Marley and the Whalers are absolute BS. Uh, that's good to know. You mentioned Burnin, which was their follow-up. And boy, does that contain a couple of classic tracks and would be more overtly Rasta-influenced than Catch a Fire, right? Yes, it was. And it was their final statement as a group together. It was the last album they recorded. 
that was in England in the spring of 1973 when they were touring in support of the Catch a Fire album and any nights they weren't playing in clubs and bitter cold cities around the British Isles, they were in the studio making the Burnin' album. Blackwell said that he would cover all the expenses of the touring and at the end of the recording sessions when they were about to go back to Jamaica, he, uh, I believe, gave them each just just a pittance. He said, no, he didn't give them anything. He said they owed him money. They owed him money. So Bunny quit the group on the spot, said he wasn't going to trade one part of white man's Babylon for another ever again. And he never left the island for another 13 years. Join us again November 24th for part two of our conversation with author Roger Steffens and So Much Things to Say, The Oral History of Bob Marley. Roger goes deep into the politics of 1970s Jamaica, the assassination attempt on Marley's life, and the cancer that would eventually claim his life. And of course, the incredible music that Bob Marley left behind. Tune in. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.